Promise No Promises The Tail and the Tongue Episode 18 How can a form be a holder for intentions and ideas? The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further chapter, The Tail and the Tongue. This series of episodes arises from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different storytelling practices and world-making experiences. For a conversation to take place, it is sufficient when two people start talking to each other. However, conversations are never happening just between two people. A conversation holds many bodies, places, stories and experiences. It develops languages and creates interpersonal and temporary dialects. Sharing is also a way of collecting seemingly individual circumstances. Our bodies host many narratives, speaking borrowed words, and making stories an important part of who we become. Stories travel between bodies, welling in them. Always in motion, they have no end. Words make worlds in which reality and its fictions travel through the tongue to become tales. How can a form be a holder for intentions and ideas? Is episode 18, following a conversation with multidisciplinary artist, experimental filmmaker and writer Crystal C. Campbell. While form is one of the meaning-making elements in art, it can be often overlooked. Our attention is easily directed towards those contents that can be stated with language. Inasmuch as reason guides us, there is always a visceral impulse that comes with it. Content from form is something that many guests in this series have noted in previous conversations, making this idea a recurring form that takes on different words. Crystal C. Campbell, who furthermore refers to attention as a form of care, shaped former relevance from a question, how can a form be a holder, a vessel, for intentions and ideas? In Crystal's work, which combines the specifics of historical events with the abstraction of artistic gestures and the serendipity of processes, form can be felt in many ways. While I was able to watch some of Crystal's films on my computer before our meeting, the feeling that my small computer screen was not the ideal setting was very much present. Crystal's films are sensible and responsive environments. They are temporary places to enter and engage in a sensory relationship with the stories they make present. These stories are part of the many public secrets that official narratives conceal for their own sake. Forgetting while feeling often so organic can be part of the structural violence. It silences or lowers the volume of many stories, the uncomfortable stories for the establishment. The 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, which is part of Crystal Z. Campbell's extensive ongoing research, is one of the stories that is part of what they refer to as public secrets. Entering public secrets is not only part of Crystal's artistic process, but also part of the life of these stories. Collective secrets to which art can give a different form and attention. As they recount during our conversation, Crystal relatively recently discovered this event that happened more than a hundred years ago in the Greenwood district of Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Tulsa Rays massacre took place over two days, in which white residents attacked black residents and businesses in Greenwood driven by entitled racist violence. In addition to the large number of deaths and hundreds of injuries, thousands of black people were left homeless. They could neither recover their property nor be compensated for the effects of the massacre. And yet, despite opposing laws, the survivors of Greenwood started rebuilding right after. As part of their research, Crystal wrote a letter to Tulsa in 2020, 99 years after the massacre, 
published in Hyperallergic. The letter opens with a personal episode in their own life, a biopsy that also makes them think of Tulsa. They talk about how new skin can grow over a wound, but how nevertheless the scar remains, just like stories do. The letter ends with a question. Will justice take another hundred years? And with a call for justice, the identification of victims needs to be paralleled by the identification of perpetrators. The witnessing relationship is also central to Crystal Z. Campbell's work. Looking is not only a biological process, but also a historical one. They wonder in another public conversation, how do we look at things we can't see? Following Crystal's words, looking should not be easy. Precisely when things are easy, our attention remains strategically distracted elsewhere, looking without seeing what is in front of us. Their projects involve a tactile vision. They look at the lack of touch in history and at bodies as archives in motion, able to move stories and pass them on to other bodies. But we're not always aware of the stories inscribed in our bodies until we experience connecting events. The tactile eye literally enters the skin with the story and cells of Henrietta Lacks. Portrait of a woman makes her present again in the work of Crystal C. Campbell. Due to medical experiments that consciously disregard human ethics, before but also now, some people are put at the service of others. Narratives of life can also be acts of violence. Not everybody is invited to be part of them, or not in the same way. Cells from Henrietta Lacks, an African-American patient, were extracted without her consent for cancer research. Her cells are the origin of the immortal HeLa cells, which are a fundamental part of scientific research. As Crystal says, in this story of violence, there is also a strange agency, that of a body that paradoxically lives on in so many others. This conversation with Crystal Z. Campbell took place in words in November of 2023. They were in St. Louis, Oklahoma, and I was in Berlin at Ran Zhang's house. It was thanks to Ran that I met Crystal at the beginning of the year when they came to Berlin for the Berlinale. While I didn't get to see their film back then, Crystal's projects have come up in conversations and walks with Ran. The two met at the Reichs Academy more than 10 years ago. The way we get to know people through each other and through shared stories makes me think of something Crystal mentioned in our conversation. The situation of indirect witness towards so many materials, events, and situations. As I finish writing this introduction, I can't help but think of another essential aspect of Crystal's work. The acts of omission. The gaps in the narratives. I realized I haven't mentioned the vinegar syndrome during the process of the Gorilla Means War project or their journey to the historical black township of Nicodemus for the film Revolver, nor one of their more recent projects, Ode to the Underloved. What's more, in preparing the script for our meeting, I would share with Crystal something we could not talk about for the lack of time, the acts of omission that also happen in art. There are still many gaps in the official narratives, but also in our professional stories. about secrets and public secrets and I'm just looking at the Merriam-Webster definition right now to give us a landing spot and so 
The first version of the definition says kept from knowledge or view, marked by the habit of discretion, working with hidden aims or methods, not acknowledged or conducted in secret. And I'm interested in all of these versions because there are different forms of intentionality, like sometimes the conducted in secret, you know, implies some sort of action or ritual or gesture that has taken place. And then there's the not acknowledge, which I think about a lot because the lack of acknowledgement can come from so many different methods and the working with hidden aims or methods is a very intentional sort of secret or discreet way of working. And then there's sort of a deliberate kept from knowledge or view that also has that intentionality around retaining the secrecy around something. I think specifically, like I started using this phrase, public secrets, when I started working around the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. And I'm from Oklahoma, and I always think about how I'm sort of embroiled in the public school system from the age of four up until the age of 23 when I finished my undergraduate degree in Oklahoma, and that was all at public schools or public universities and even a community college. In the middle school up until high school, I was taking Oklahoma history classes. And throughout all of that time, the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre was never mentioned. And I didn't learn about it until I moved to New York and another artist relayed that there was a massacre in Tulsa. And it made me think a lot about how artists are important transmitters of these histories and are doing certain types of research and sharing and can share and amplify these stories that are undertold or underspoken. On the other hand, it made me think about how well and how deliberately the state and everyone who worked in these school systems, these teachers and professors and everyone else who never mentioned it in passing in private conversations, like how well this information was kept from the public, though someone from outside was aware of it. And so to me, that signifies something that was information that was shared by many, but for a number of reasons, whether it be intimidation or implication, did not share that information. For sure, there was this phenomenon of, you know, once you hear about something, it sort of raises your antenna to it, right? Like your ears are a little bit wider or a little more sensitive to trying to listen for those discretions and listen for those suggestions that might inform you of that history and the potentiality. And then also just looking back at you know, my own experience of growing up in Oklahoma, which was not filled with ease, but also the great discomfort, like there's always this tension in the air. And some things really started to make sense. The unspoken raises the attention to what lies beneath the surface of things, because there's um, maybe in, in sort of common surface level interactions. Oklahomans are stereotypically framed as being friendly underneath that friendliness as well, right? There's also this curiosity and there's also this encoded language 
that begins to make a little more sense. Oklahoma is an interesting word. It's actually a Choctaw Indian word and it means red people. And it's also a place where, you know, during the Trail of Tears, many Native American people were forced to migrate to Oklahoma. And Oklahoma has a lot of like interesting histories because it was land that nobody really wanted, which is why they decided to transplant indigenous peoples to Oklahoma. Also, it was a place where after the Civil War, there were over 50 black townships and also a lot of outlaw culture. So you have this mix of all of these different groups of people who are forced to settle or settling out of, you know, trying to find a bit of peace after difficult transitions and migrations. And there was uh, more sort of intercultural collaboration in the beginning. Then they discovered oil. And of course, oil led to uh, prospectors and led to people being attracted to the possibility of generating wealth through this extraction and through the land. And a lot of that land ended up being on or in Indian territory. We have all these complicated dynamics like the Osage murders. I don't know if you've heard of this new film, Killers of the Flower Moon, but it talks about the Osage murders and how head rights for land were transferred matrilineally. So you have a number of white men who were deliberately marrying indigenous women, not all the time, but sometimes the women would end up unalived and those rights to the land would be transferred to the white man. And it's a place also that even in the U.S., they call it the flyover states. It's an area that many people sort of skip over because there's not like, um, we don't have a Disney world, you know, we don't have destination points that people are in a rush to sort of get to. It's not beautiful in the traditional sense of a land having, um, you know, a beach or sort of terrain. In the center, it's very flat and there are some smaller mountains in the south and in the panhandle area, but it's not a place that anyone is flocking to because of its beauty in a way, even though I've started to find it more beautiful now as I get older. part-time in Oklahoma. Right now I'm in St. Louis finishing a fellowship and then my my other normal destination home is Buffalo, New York. St. Louis is sort of in between Oklahoma City and Buffalo. But yeah, it's true. It's kind of this latent appreciation. I thought it was so boring. I just thought it was so quiet. And it's also like something that I realized just had a profound like impact on me is the landscape there. Like since it is incredibly flat, like you can see, you know, 50 miles ahead of you in a lot of places. I realized when I travel to a place that is more mountainous or has a valley that I start to get a bit claustrophobic looking for my wide horizon, you know. as you're talking, you're reminding me of, even though the landscape and the horizon seems sort of endless, is gorgeous and inviting in a way, like the actual political climate is very conservative and restrained. And it's a very conservative red state. For a long time, like tattoos were banned, you know, and people would drive to the next state to get a tattoo or um, these kinds of things. They've also banned critical race theory, along with many other conservative places. You have all this like openness in the landscape and space, but perhaps not in the political imagination. 
it's been very complicated to work from Oklahoma in a way because their real estate is cheaper so you can get a studio for a less expensive price than you know New York City or LA of course but in terms of sharing work around the 1921 Tulsa race massacre for instance you know my work was censored from an exhibition in Oklahoma City the censorship of my exhibition happened in 2020 which was uh, 99 years after the race massacre happened and so people wonder often how this history is unknown or has been unknown for almost a century. And it's because of these sort of deliberate attempts by institutions and individuals and organizations, as well as some of the archives that I tried to make contact with, wouldn't share, you know, certain swaths of information at the time. And since the Centennial, there's been a little bit more opening up, but there were a lot of challenges in trying to get more information around this from the public record as well. postcards made during the massacre and this sort of mirrored other types of violences that were documented around the U.S. including like lynching of men and women, black men and women and Latinx folks as well as some white people were lynched around the turn of the century. There were a lot of postcards that were made in response to the massacre and this mirrored the way that postcards were also used to document some of the lynchings in the United States. And maybe thinking about the relationship to our contemporary technology, like the way that George Floyd's passing under police violence went viral mirrors that like virality of a certain violence that is demonstrated against bodies of color and how what that means to be a secondary witness to that material like what does that mean for somebody who encountered those postcards and I'm also thinking about the people who had to encounter those postcards because both of my parents worked for the post office and postal employees had to see this. They had to sift through this material. And at some point, the post office banned the distribution of this imagery. And I think about how this imagery affected the psychological space of the individuals that encountered it, right? For some Unfortunately, this was a moment of pride for them, right? Like they were showing off these deaths as a sort of trophy. And for others, this was a form of intimidation. This was saying, don't try this yourself, right? Like don't try to to move somewhere and establish a place amongst other Black people and try to create some sort of utopia because this could be your ending as well, right? There's something that's really complicated also about the use of the photographic apparatus to document this history because that took a lot of planning at the time. It's not like somebody had an iPhone, pulled it out of their pocket, like they had to carry this heavy-duty camera and have a tripod and have this sheet that they put over the camera, you know, to, it took a lot of planning and it took a lot of foresight to stage these photographs as well as to pull off this bombing of Greenwood that happened. There can be this level of disbursement of this history on a consumer level, but also this grand silence that happens in the aftermath. Thank you.
When I was in grad school, I was working on a piece, maybe one of my first like digital video works came out of a video link my friend emailed me. And when I opened the link, it was hard to understand what it was at first because the video quality, it was what Hito Steyerl would call a poor image. The video resolution was very poor. I think I was, I was very confused by what I was trying to watch and understand. And as it unfolded further, I realized it was a moment of police violence. It was DeAndre Brunston, black man in Compton, California, in the U.S. He was killed by police during a standoff. And it really struck me because it was the first time that I was watching a death happen by on the internet. I was like, why is this on the internet? Why is this available on the internet? And it really sort of changed the way I was thinking about how this material, how images circulate, how death circulates. It was also very abstract because it was on my computer screen and and because the sound was sometimes inaudible and because how poorly rendered the resolution was, like you couldn't make out the specifics of this person and these people, but their voices were pretty distinct. And I started working with that audio and in that audio, the victim of this violence, DeAndre Brunson, asked for the camera dozens of times. He asked for this to be recorded. He asked for this to be documented on camera many, many times. And he was highly aware of sort of the camera as an agent and the possibilities of what this recording could do in a mode of like latent justice, I believe. Like he knew this could be evidence for something later. It's almost as if he knew what his fate would be and the camera was his witness. I worked with that audio and shot some footage of this landscape of these boulders in Iceland when I was on a residency during grad school. And I paired that landscape footage with this audio. And when I showed it, I was surprised because if there's a back to a boulder, people were assuming that this was the back of someone's head after I spoke to them, after I screened it and we had conversations afterwards. People assumed that this was the back of a person's head. And it was so unusual to think about that, like this boulder, which was a completely different scale than the scale of a human, could be perceived to be the same thing as the back of someone's head. And I realized in that process and with that feedback, how much distortion we are capable of through camera apparatus, through the cinematic apparatus, and through the construction of media. I'm interested in that. I think that while a lot of the works reference some traumatic event or history, that I'm also just as interested in the construction and the making of of a story through sound and image and the slippage between perception and misperception that's available to us in different combinations of sound and image. I feel like I spent most of my childhood planning my escape out of Oklahoma 
And I, you know, had these fantasies about how I would leave. I was like trying to get good grades and get a scholarship and use education to be my ticket out of there, out of Oklahoma. I left for, I think, around 10 years. And then when I came back with this art fellowship in 2016, and I stayed up until 2021 full-time. And so when I went back, you know, this was by choice this time, right? And I think when you go back to a place by choice, you do start to look at things a little differently. When I was looking for materials around the Tulsa Race Massacre, I wanted to find images of the Greenwood community that thrived before and after this event. There were so many images of the rubble. There were so many images of destruction, of bricks strewn all over the place, of partially destroyed or predominantly destroyed walls, of streets that were obliterated, of homes that were obliterated, of things on fire. And it was so hard to find just images of people who were living their lives, who were just in a sort of banal, everyday existence. And over a course of different moments of archival research in different places, I ran across this archive of people out in the community who were documenting their existence in the community. And I ended up working from this archive for quite a long time and making a hundred painted images and collages over these archival photographs. And I don't know, I couldn't find the photographer's name, but some of the subjects in the photos are repeated. It was really important to see this. It was really important to see people claiming that land and claiming that space and wanting to have a record of of survival in that particular geographical coordinate. When I first got there, wasn't as developed as it is now. There now there's a lot of restaurants and coffee shops and high-end apartments. When I first got there, there was a lot of vacant land and there was a lot of of inattention to the space. So in the last few years, they planted trees. They have created a little bit of green space downtown. They have paved over some of the roads that were uncared for. But there's also these two sets of monuments and plaques in the ground that are plaques that say what business was destroyed and they're located roughly where that business was located. And they'll say destroyed in 1921 or rebuilt or not rebuilt. And there's two sets and they basically say the same thing, just one is larger than the other. But if you walk around and look at them, you'll see that some of them are missing or just dirty, like no one is really caring for those plaques or maintaining them. And that is still the case. I just went a couple of days ago to Tulsa, and that's still the case today. But now there's a museum dedicated to covering that history. And now there are tours dedicated to navigating people around particular sites. So there's this form of dark tourism that has maybe stepped into the reality of of engagement that sort of monumentalizes in a different way. That's been interesting to see over the course of seven years or so, how differently this moment has engaged with a sort of public history and collective memory.
every project takes on a different method and methodology. A lot of the way that I've been trying to work in spaces and get to know spaces is through these sort of walks and through sensory experiences. Sometimes just going and sitting still and observing a space and listening to a space. I always get in trouble for touching all the artwork at museum. For me, it's a very like visceral experience to to engage with a work or to engage with a place. Or that's one way that I'm getting information through my fingers, right? Through my fingertips, through my ears, through my eyes, and through sound and silence and yeah all of those things are generated by some other impetus or some other agent it's interesting to make contact I think a lot of it is is also trying to just make contact with those transmissions in some way All of the projects seem to start at a different place. And for Guerrilla Means War, which is a short film that I worked on, that was perhaps the most serendipitous project that found me as I was trespassing with a friend inside of this Black Civil Rights Theater in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. It was a while ago. It was like 2011 before I moved to the Netherlands to go to the Reichs Academy and she just wanted to take a walk in the in the area and this neighborhood was sort of halfway between my neighborhood and her neighborhood so we met there and she asked if I'd been to the slave theater and the name sort of took me aback I'm like slave theater like what is that and she insisted that it was important for me to see the murals that were inside of this space so when we got there, it was being squatted and we just trespassed inside and there was no electricity, of course. So she gave me her phone and we used that phone as a flashlight to see the murals. And when we were leaving, you know, my foot hit this object on the floor. And I don't know why, because you should never just pick up random things on the floor in New York anywhere. But I just instinctively picked it up. And it ended up being this 35 millimeter reel of film. And I didn't know what was on this film. So when I got to the Netherlands, I sent the film to a, a lab in uh, Belgium to have it digitized and they refused it. And then I sent it to a lab in Los Angeles and they also refused it. The film was already developed. I was trying to get it professionally scanned, professionally digitized, so that I could see what was on the film. And they refused the film because it had what archivists call vinegar syndrome, a deterioration of the film body itself. It also has the odor of vinegar, which is where the name comes from. But at this point of degradation of the film quality, it starts to flake off. It's very dehydrated. And in this case, it was stuck together. So they would have to take the risk of pulling it apart in its most fragile state. It would just take a lot of time. But the biggest reason was that if they agreed to scan it, then it was just one reel for them. And in the scanning machine that they had, the digitizing machine they have, they would have had to take it apart entirely piece by piece and clean it and disinfect it so that my film would not contaminate every other film that came after it. And for one reel of film, it just financially and time-wise wasn't worth the, wasn't worth the cost. They would have lost money in the process. But it's also that sort of 
contamination, right? Like everything has to be very clean and precise for this preservation process. And so I actually just came back from a conference on archivists who uh, called EMEA, where archivists are working with moving image. And this came up a lot about vinegar syndrome and scanning. And um, it was a very logistical, like they were talking predominantly about methodology because they have thousands of pieces of material that they're trying to organize and scan and back up, have backup files of and uh, label, like how do you create a consensus around nomenclature across multiple archives and multiple lo locations to make it easier to determine what is out there or to make your system more legible to people outside. I was impressed by that level of methodology, right? <laughs> so envious of this methodology because my process, it's so responsive in a way. After letting this film sit for six years in my parents' house in Oklahoma, I was back in Oklahoma. This is when I moved back from the Netherlands. And I had gone out to eat with my mother and I came back to her house and literally the house was on fire. You know, my father was inside, so we made sure that he got out. And then my mind went to this film I said, oh, this film is like the one thing inside that I feel like I need to preserve, you know, outside of like family. This is one thing that I need to sort of preserve because it could be the only copy of it left in the world. That feeling really created an urgency in me to do something with this film. So I went on a residency and I... I couldn't afford these rewinds and all the sort of professional tools that filmmakers use. So me and my neighbor, who is a painter, went to a DIY shop and I just told her I need to scan this film. You know, I need to make something that looks like what filmmakers use. And she's like, yeah, of course, we should go to the plumbing aisle and I'm sure you can figure out some plumbing structure and tools that can be cobbled together. So that's exactly what we did. And I took these plumbing tubes and made a, like my own sort of version of a rewind and a take up reel with this corrugated plastic and plumbing tubes for the take up reel. And um, I used that to scan for six months this film, which would become Guerrilla Means War. But at the same time, I. You know, I had a scanner that was the wrong aspect ratio. It was a scanner not for moving image film, but for 35 millimeter photography film. So the scans were like one and one third of an image. It was very strange to see. And then I was watching the film over six months on a one inch by one and a half inch screen. That was poor resolution. So when I finally got the professional scan done, I didn't recognize the film at all. What is this film? What was, you know, it was this consolidation of something that was happening in an incredibly slow motion event and so poor resolution that I was probably just making up half of the image in my imagination. also just didn't know anything about the film so I went back to New York for a couple of weeks and went to seven different archives and tried to find more information about the origins of this film and Judge John Phillips who was deceased but he was the owner of this theater and he started this black civil rights theater and bought the theater because he was an amateur filmmaker and he couldn't find anybody to show his films. He had made a film about an interracial couple that nobody would screen. So he bought these two theaters to show his work. He was also a black belt and he established a dojo. 
I couldn't find any other films to verify that this film was shot by him, but everything points to him being the maker of this work. So I, for now, just have a director unknown until I confirm it, but I'm pretty sure it's his work because all of those signs are in the imagery of the work. Just thinking about Guerrilla Means War and the asynchronous quality of the sound and the image. It's been interesting like sharing that film with different people, especially outside of the art context. There was somebody that I met who participated in making a documentary, I think collaborating more as a historian. I told him about the film and we exchanged links to our work. And after a few minutes, just after I emailed him, he wrote me back and said, Crystal, something is wrong. The image and the sound don't seem to be working together. And I wrote him back like, oh, you know, that was intentional, blah, 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 blah. But it also sort of made me realize how nuanced the audience is for this work. <laughs> And also the expectation of even watching a film, you know, like what is the expectation in even watching a film? Like how we sort of generate that expectation. I'm always wondering how I can sort of unravel that expectation or push against that expectation a bit in form. Like form is part of the method because I think I'm always trying to think about as a maker and as an artist, how does the form mirror the ideas and intentions that I have for the work? How can the form carry those intentions or be a holder or container or vessel for those intentions? And in another work called Revolver, the installation for the video is projected onto the floor and it requires people walk around it and look down and have this sort of embodied experience in the viewing of the work. There's an effort made to look, like there has to be an effort made to look at the work. There has to be a crouch or some other shift in the body to engage with it. Or in flight, for instance, where you have these really harsh contrasting colors. I wanted to think about color blindness in that piece. I wanted to think about this theory that we can't hold those colors in our brain at the same time, that these are impossible images. And also the possibility that some people might not even be able to read those images at all. Just thinking about the parallels with the history, it being right in front of us, but also it being invisible or so low visibility that we are not aware of it and sort of how how there is so much in front of us all the time that we don't see. There's all these different ways maybe that I'm interested in. The looking and the interpretation of the work, but also asking people to slow down and to try to create work for them to do to engage with the work. I've been framing my work around this idea of the underloved 
the underloved being people and places and events that are deserving of more attention. I would like to use a small platform that I have to bring more attention to. You know, I think attention is can be a form of care as well. And I think that through the artwork, we can sort of shift this little spotlight to different things that we want to bring attention to. I'm always selecting people or subjects or places that raise some sort of conflict in me, that creates some tension in me or very strong feeling that I can't shake. And that is what leads me back to it is because I want to spend some time unraveling it in my work and diving deeper into it in the research and also trying to reflect that research back to an audience. So there's this constant like back and forth between these intimate moments of trying to siphon more information and to find clarity within that information in a form. And sometimes that takes years to reflect it back to the audience in a way that honors both this sort of opacity and story that I would like to relay. There's a connection between the work around Tulsa and the work around the Black Township of Nicodemus in Kansas. I first read about Nicodemus when I was researching about Tulsa, and there was, I think, some movement back and forth because of McCabe, who was one of the co-founders of Nicodemus also helped to establish another black township in Oklahoma called Langston. And Tulsa was a connection for some in both directions. And Nicodemus, I was looking at because I was curious about like this location in Kansas and I started to dive deeper into it. And I was thinking about, you know, how to create a work around a town that has a population of around a dozen people that remain. I remember writing the one of my contacts there and saying I wanted to interview some of the descendants of Nicodemus. I would like to interview them. I would like to just you know, have a conversation with them. So I drove from Oklahoma to Nicodemus, Kansas, and I think it was about a five-hour drive. I planned to interview people while I was there, and one of them said, well, you need to talk to Angela Bates. And Angela Bates was uh, listed as the town historian and archivist and also a really important person who helped to bring the National Park Service into Nicodemus and have the federal government involved in preserving and being a sort of servant to this history by designating it as a historical site. Uh, when I got to Nicodemus, I went to Angela's house. She doesn't live in Nicodemus. She lives in one town over. So we went to her house and we started talking and I told her I wanted to interview her about the Nicodemus history. But what she provided in the interview also included her visions and her dreams. And not dreams of what I want to do, but sort of dreams during REM sleep. <laughs> and those sort of 
different layers of consciousness and unconsciousness, in addition to some of the writing she had worked on around these children's books, where she was generating stories around Nicodemus for a younger audience, as well as these sort of visions, these sort of premonitions and visions that she would have. What I realized in listening to her and being with her in that space was that there was no hierarchy around the way that she talked about the history of Nicodemus and the facts of the founding of Nicodemus or the dreams that she had or the visions like one wasn't any more substantial or relevant than the other. They were all sort of entangled and intertwined and the chronology was of course, much more circular than linear. There was a lot of abstraction in the telling. And I realized that something that I have not been able to access in the archives and in the records is this abstraction, but the abstraction has been so important to Black survival. In those works, in the work Revolver, which is featured in Ode to the Underloved as an installation, and the work with the collages around Tulsa's Greenwood community, like I feel like what I'm bringing to this archival material and these moments of the official sort of record are these attempts to trouble that record with abstraction, but abstraction also being a valid form of telling and thinking that also creates a generative space and an open space for further imaginings. I feel like Angela really spoke to Paradolia in a lot of ways during our interview. And I had done this research on Herman Rorschach many, many years before in this residency in Switzerland, where we went to see his archives. And we saw some of the original inkblot drawings that he made and some of the ones that didn't make it in the final set. And it was interesting to see this language, that visual language that he was generating and trying to make something that is simultaneously very open, but also recognizable. And some of them were too easily recognizable or too determinate. So he would make those a bit more indeterminate to give people a little more room to, to create a broader language and interpretation around those images. And I think I was trying to do that with the imagery in, in Revolver to marry this sort of abstraction and language that is part of Angela's storytelling. And there's also like some very private things that she was sharing. So there's also deliberate omissions in what becomes the final form of the film. I'm still working on a short film around Tulsa, so maybe it's true that this work is infinite, you know, and without clear ending, because maybe there's so many things that still remain unresolved, and the history is still ongoing and still lived and embodied. I'm thinking back to this moment in graduate school where I was working on these sculptures and they were all very like lowbrow materials like duct tape and plastic bags and, you know, maybe some cloth and things. And I was creating these objects and sometimes I would hide an object inside of the object, like inside of the shell. But 
the viewer can never experience that object that was inside of the the shell. But I knew it was there. I wanted it to be there. And it was also something that would deteriorate over time or it could be damaged. So there could be at some point some evidence that it was there on the outside, on the skin of the object, but you wouldn't know it until that chemical reaction took place. And I always think about that embedding the secret within the form of the thing itself. That is really something only I am aware of and everyone else will find it when the time comes. Being in St. Louis, as part of this fellowship, I'll have an exhibition at the SLAM, which is the St. Louis Art Museum. It's a public institution here, and that will happen next year. But St. Louis is an important site, actually, in the exoduster history because there were some people who were traveling from the South. In some cases, they couldn't continue the journey to Nicodemus and these other locations of the migration or couldn't afford the ticket, you know, there are many other reasons, or they got sick here, and some stayed in St. Louis, thinking about St. Louis as this place, crossing point, but also this inadvertent destination for some, and creating a sort of abstract materiality around uh, some of the research I'm doing in archives, finishing this film on Tulsa, and also trying to work on a project around my family, which intersects with U.S. imperialism and my father being in the military and marrying my mother, who was in the Philippines while he was stationed, then both of them working for the post office and thinking of that distribution and labor as another arm in this imperial power It seems like a lot of the work is dealing with these migrations and with imperialism and with story and these material witnesses to these histories and these gaps in the archives and always thinking a lot about my own methodology and what Sadia Hartman talks about as critical fabulation and the use of fiction in the ethics of working with these material sources and all the things that we can't know from the archives. It seems like these three projects are really concentric circles that are all shaping a particular type of narrative, but always through fragmented bodies. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Center for Gender and Equality, a research project by the Institute Art, Gender, Nature at the Basel Academy of Art and Design, FHNW, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop, and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science, and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch. 
or subscribe to our newsletter at info.iagn.hdk at fhnw.ch. That's info.iagn.hdk at fhnw.ch. Recording and editing Crystal Z. Campbell and Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover Elena Cesar. Music S. McAvoy. Research team Tabea Rotfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and communication Anna Franke. Technical support Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Colleen Barth. Copyright by Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, Basel, FHNW, 2024.